The following aviation podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast by thepilotreport.com about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode number 54, Backyard Flying, Kit Fox Aircraft, Rotax Engines, Crazed Pilots, and more coming up now on this edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast, sponsored by forpilotsonly.com. Now, here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Sean Moody. Rick Felty, Carl Valeri, and Len Costa. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast, episode number 54. I'm your host, Len Costa. Joining me on the show today is my favorite group of aviation ninny hammers. Joining us first is uh, Mr. Carl Valeri, who is uh, back with us today from all the way from his not crash pad studio, but the basement studio in New Jersey, I believe. Is that correct? That's correct. I'm actually hiding in the basement now in this very chilly weather. It's starting to get really cold up here. It's getting down to 64 degrees. I'm going to go get my sweater. <laughs> well, you are in the cold basement. Yes, yes. And it's uh, it's actually finally cooling off up north here. But I'm really excited to be here. It's uh, I'm glad I uh, flew all the way up from Florida to enjoy this nice cool weather. Boy, we could use a break, especially with all the rain we've been getting lately. Not really good flying weather, that's for sure. I, I some reason, imagine you hold up in the basement there with mittens and a winter hat on and your sweater and it's just like breath you know you could see the cold uh, the 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 air coming out of your breath you know the little frost there they're podcasting well actually the only frost air is on the mug <laughs> well, there you go bravo excellent choice excellent choice um well great good to have you here today our uh Next co-host, Victoria Zyko, all the way from her studio in uh, in Maryland. How are you today? Um, I disagree with Ninny Hammer. <laughs> um, it says in the definition, a simpleton, comma, a silly person. I'm 50% of that. I don't think I'm a simpleton. I'm offended by that, but I do agree that I'm a silly person. Okay, so my uh, favorite So I'm either half... a ninny or a hammer. Right, I was going to say my favorite half ninny hammers, whichever... There you go. Whichever you want, the ninny or the hammer. Maybe the ninny. I kind of like ninny. What about I become a knee ham? There's that too. That's yeah. the middle of ninny hammer. You go. There you go. I like it. Knee ham. So uh, Victoria <laughs> the knee ham. You're going to have to update your profile online now so we we all know. So. <laughs> well, so. well, welcome. Good to have you here. Yeah. Um, Mr. Sean Moody is joining us once again from uh, from his studio in Kentucky. We've missed you on the last few shows, Sean. you got a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, who are you guys? Who is this? <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> no, yeah, I'm sorry to uh, to have been gone the past couple of times. Just uh, real world stuff keeps getting in the way. Stupid real world. New I, I don't try to live in podcast world. And new cars, work, all that good yeah, stuff. Yeah, you know. But I'm enjoying the car. That's Very the cool. Part. Very cool. Uh, and our next uh, aviation Neham, uh, Mr. Rick Felty, joining us from his studio outside well, of Boston, Massachusetts. I'm glad Victoria looked it up because I, <laughs> I, I hadn't I hadn't gotten a chance to yet. So, thank you for protecting our honor. Absolutely. 
So uh, and the show has come off the rails already. (laughs) (laughs) Already, yeah. Funny thing is, speaking of off the rails, because we were supposed to record this show a week ago, Hmm. and um, uh, see, let's see if I can remember the sequence of events here. (laughs) Um, I get a (laughs) about a half an hour before the show. I get um, a text message from Rick that he has water in the basement and he won't be able to make it. And uh, Victoria had wasn't was going to be off the show that night anyway for uh, conflict scheduling and then i get um aka broken aircraft yeah broken aircraft right so she she was driving up to canada to retrieve the aircraft which was there uh, after its repairs and then sean got in touch with me and they were having an internet outage um an area-wide internet outage in uh in Kentucky, so it, it, it became, it was going to be Carl and I and Brendan, and uh, so we decided to reschedule, but the universe uh, did not want us to podcast last week, but we are all here, all uh, ready to go, and uh, we've got a couple of announcements to share with you before we do get started. We've got a, a uh, special guest today that we're going to be talking about uh, aircraft ownership and uh, powered parachute flying, and also... Um, this gentleman actually has his own backyard grass runway. So we're going to, you know, hear some stories about flying out of your own backyard. But before we do, let's do the pre-flight. We've got uh, an announcement that Carl wanted to share and then a couple that I was going to go over. So, Carl, tell us about your uh, announcement today. Yeah, actually, uh, you know, there's all these neat air shows going on, but if uh, you don't want to enjoy the outdoors, there's also some really neat conferences coming up. And, of course, uh, in September, Air Transport World, they started this Echo Aviation Conference and Awards about six years ago, five years ago. And it's coming up in Washington, D.C., September 11th and 12th. And uh, you can find out about this by going to atwonline.com. And at this conference, they uh, not only do they discuss uh, sustainability and and how to make the sustainable and also the fuels alternative fuels affordable, they also talk about the political hurdles, everything, uh, you know, all the different social economic issues. Uh, the one thing that I think is really cool about this conference, and I would love to be there for this, I'm going to try to make it. Is that you know that company wheel tug that they have that appliance that they can attach to the wheels of the airplane and take it out to the air to the runway by just running the APU instead of running the engines on the airplane that could save tons of gas literally right. tons of gas and uh, it's it's pretty neat stuff they're, they're, it's saving the airlines lots of money it's uh, actually it's saving the environment of course by doing that and uh, this this conference has like the Echo Airline of the Year and Echo Partnership of the Year and Echo Pioneer of the year and uh, this was just announced uh, that the echo pioneer will be actually wheel tug uh, but there's some there's just some amazing things going on just uh, within the aviation community as a whole but it's neat to see what the airlines are doing and uh, and what United actually uh, uh, you know I, I applaud them for all their efforts and using alternative fuels uh, whether it'll come to fruition in the next few years is is, is uh, up to speculation but it's some pretty interesting stuff so again air transport world six annual echo aviation conference and awards and if you can't make it uh, there's a really cool newsletter they have that you can sign up for at atw online it's their echo aviation newsletter and there's some really cool things about all the innovations happening so i i'd encourage you to go check that out atwonline.com i have i've seen that uh that that wheel tug assembly i read about that i think it was last year and i was telling you guys off off the air but it would have become in handy the other day because we had an air traffic control reroute and burning two engines in an APU 
while sitting on the, um, they had actually just moved us uh, out of sequence. We were like number three or four in line for takeoff. And they gave us, uh, they, they told us that our departure fix was closed, pull out a line off to the side and contact clearance. So we got both engines running and the AP running and the time it took to contact clearance, get our ATC reroute, uh, get in touch with dispatch and figure out if the new route was going to be longer, require more fuel. Yeah, we in fact actually needed to upload an extra thousand pounds of fuel. So that would, that you know, a device like that would definitely come in handy. Um, we should uh, we should look into that more and talk about that that item itself more specifically on a later show. But the uh, the the I think it's electric, right? That's what you yes, said. Electric yeah. wheel tub. Well, yeah, electric motor runs off the uh, power Correct. of the aircraft. Correct. Uh, electricity. Yeah. Yeah, but it's an actual so it's an actual fixed item on the mm-hmm. aircraft that. Uh, yeah, so very cool, very cool. So it's like electric drive for air, yeah, air, airplane yeah. wheels. That's and neat. I think they're going to have those people that have the remote control tugs that are uh, uh, connected to the aircraft. They're going to be there also. Uh, that's the one where they actually pull the aircraft into a tug and then the aircraft uh, re- remotely actually steers it, basically using the tug as okay. its own engine. Okay. Neat interesting. Stuff. Yeah, this yeah. Is, is all interesting stuff. The future of aviation is uh, – it's always unfolding before our eyes. So, a very Turning neat. blue skies to green. Blue skies. I like that. Very, very I didn't crit- come up with I was going to say, I don't know, ATW's. Carl, you, you're mm-hmm. not that creative. I no, just didn't think no. you could do yeah, that. <laughs> hey. Hey. Oh, hey. Hey. Go <laughs> easy on me. I'm freezing down here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, a couple of uh, not necessarily announcements on my behalf, but um, we've been, uh, you know, we all play on the internet. Found I found some, been finding some really fun, cool stuff, aviation-related stuff, and putting putting more more uh, blog posts on stuckmikeavcast.com. I just wanted to review the last three uh, over the last couple of weeks. We had um, we had the July edition of Where's Baldo, where usually I just blog real quick about the destinations that I've flown to uh, for work to you know for. People to get an idea of all the places, whether it's a frequency or a number of flights, uh, you know, kind of give an idea, a little inside look of what it's like for airline flying. Um, so the July edition is out on the website. Uh, there's another one called Mom, Where Do Airplanes Go When They Die? Uh, that's one about aircraft, graveyards, and boneyards, uh, an article I found online that had photos and descriptions and conversations about the different aviation graveyards out there worldwide. So that's over at the website. And uh, a third one called What's in a Call Sign? And this one has to do with a gentleman who compiled a list of all of the military call signs out there. And what... um, what kind of either aircraft or what branch or division or where they fly from, just some information. So when you're out there and you hear, uh, you know, Satan 5-5 on the radio and you're like, who the heck is Satan? Uh, you know, this is this is a resource you can use to look up the different call signs and, like I said, find out either what kind of aircraft it is or where it's flying out of. So those three, uh, those are three of the uh, blog posts that we have over at stuckmikeavcast.com. Continue to visit the website and check out what we're doing over there. I'll try to put out, um, we've been averaging an, uh, you know, one of these fun blog posts uh, about every week now. So that's something to definitely check, uh, check out. Uh, now entering cruise flight. Now, we, like I said at the beginning of the show, we do have a guest today. Now, kind of a little interesting backstory between our guest, a uh, mutual friend of ours, friend of the podcast, who has not only been a guest co-host, um, but you've heard his name mentioned probably a few times on the show, is uh, Larry Overstreet. And 
I think it was late last year. We, we were actually trying to figure out uh, without spending the time to research uh, through my email. But, you know, somewhere in the last uh, 8 to 12 months um, ago, I got an email from Larry that says, I think you should meet my friend so-and-so. I, th- I think you guys um, would ha- you know, have a lot in common. So we started emailing and having conversation and talking about flying. And I found out he was an aircraft owner. And like I said, he had, you know, he flies his own airplane out of his backyard airport, a one-way grass runway. And uh, we just start to, you know, started to get to know one another. And so what we're going to do today is talk with aircraft owner, um, Obviously, pilot, aircraft owner, and aviation business owner, Brendan O'Mara. Welcome to the show today, Brendan. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. So glad to be here. So we, um, we always start out the interviews uh, with getting to know our guest. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Now, you, are, you do live in Oregon, uh, and you are a pilot. So are you originally from Oregon? Yeah, born and raised. Uh, in fact, uh, eighth-generation Oregonian. So we've been here a long time, and I'm the first, well, I'm the first licensed pilot since the 30s. Uh, my, one of the O'Mara family was uh, actually killed in a Waco accident up in Washington, and he was the last, uh, he was the last pilot that, that I'm aware of uh, before myself. Uh, I'll tell you, my father actually had some time, but his logbook ends about three months before I was born, so now he gets to fly with me. <laughs> well, very good. So, yeah, I've been flying for mm, I've been flying since 2008, and was a rental pilot for a while, and then went on to the uh, flying club uh, setup. That works pretty good. I'm I'm a fan of flying clubs. I like the idea of being able to split the cost like that. But ultimately, you start realizing the limitations there where they'll let you fly, the type of flying that they'll let you do, and realized that uh, off-airport uh, was the kind of arena I want to do more flying in, uh, more bush-type flying. So we opted to uh, take the leap and bought ourselves a little two-seater. So we have a lot of fun in that. Just go out, find somewhere that'll uh, give you permission to land, either private strips or sometimes backcountry stuff. So that's the kind of flying that I enjoyed uh, the most. But... Uh, if I want to take four up or something, uh, I've got access to a Cardinal that I can rent. So we'll go gear up and put some put some speed to it. The rest of the the rest of the time, I like to do the low and slow. All right. So you've been flying since two thousand eight. Uh, we've uh, you went from like you said, flying club to aircraft ownership. Uh, tell us a little bit about your flight training and and what certificates you have, uh, Brendan. Well, I'm private pilot. Uh, Went down the process of getting uh, high performance and complex, but uh, like I was saying, my love, of course, really is tailwheel. So uh, I spend most of my time flying tailwheel. But for training, we did the uh, the private CFI kind of thing where uh, I found this gentleman who was uh, ex-Vietnam era uh, pilot, and he uh, he was kind of operating a, a one-horse flight school, and he was really laid back and just invited me to come over and hang out and show me his planes and ended up uh, getting all my instruction from him. I did it in pretty short order. I, I kind of followed the uh, the old three times a week, four times a week flight instruction uh, mantra, and that that really worked out good. It's very cost effective, and 
you learn a lot that way from someone with his kind of experience and the number of hours he's had in his flight career. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. Yeah, it's funny because we talked about that on one of our other shows, the frequency of flight training. So you felt that that was helpful to you, the, uh, the, the three times a week. That was beneficial to you. Oh, yeah, more than beneficial. I know I think I soloed in like 12 hours, and I was, I, I was complete at like 41 and a half hours. We got ourselves a flying wow. ace on the line here, folks. Nice. <laughs> wow. Just efficient. Just efficient. <laughs> <laughs> Efficiency is my middle name. There you so go. We, uh, I definitely, I definitely cranked on it, and it was one of those things I had, I had wanted to be a pilot since I was very young, and mm-hmm. I think the dad's interest had floated over onto, uh, onto me, and you know, I mean, what, what kid doesn't look up at the sky and go, I want to do that? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I know that. In fact, I still have it. I have an, um, one of my earliest little toys that my dad made me is a little wooden airplane, and I still have it floating around in the house just as a reminder of, of how early some of these seeds can be planted and, and then come to fruition so many years later. But, mm-hmm. you know, and on, the, on the flip side, uh, as an example of, of how things shouldn't go, I remember walking into an FBO nearby, and I won't say where, um, and I was just kind of given the cold shoulder. And that's, that's not how you want to treat the new people. They, they just did – they they – I was new or an un, an unfamiliar face, and I wasn't embraced. And it then I, I it kind of killed my dream for almost ten years until I finally got back. So that's kind of the the sad the, the sad side of the story is I had actually gotten to the point of having enough money ten years prior, and just because of of the treatment, it took another ten years. But uh, yeah, it, it's you know, right. we've t- we've talked about that a bit too from time to time. Just the idea that there's a there are people out there that do do that right, that little moment, and then there's a lot of people that don't, or there have been. And so changing that is a big, um, I think it should be a big goal of GA. It's yeah. a critical so, moment for a, yeah. for a newcomer because they feel they already feel awkward because as if the the fences and the gates and the and the uh, man gate codes and everything doesn't throw that kind of right. feel. You know, it, once they finally get inside and they're standing in your FBO, oh, please right. welcome them. Yeah. With open arms. We need exactly. more. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you have your private and the uh, high-performance and tailwind endorsements. What else, uh, is there anything else beyond that? No, I, I really only fly for pleasure, and that's been more than sufficient. Uh, I, I'm a VFR pilot, and I, I love it like that. I'm, I'm the 300... 500 foot <laughs> off the ground kind of pilot and so instrument isn't really something that I that I feel that I want to chase at this time. Mm-hmm. So speaking of which, the uh, 500 foot off the ground flying, um, you did uh, after, let's see, after the flying club, your first aircraft was a Kit Fox 3. Now that's a two-person aircraft. Uh, High wing, tail wheel aircraft, correct? That's correct. Uh, unless you really want to stick in there the short period of time that I was a powered parachute owner. Oh, well, that sounds interesting. How short of a time? Uh, I think I got into powered parachutes for maybe a year and a half or two years. At the, uh, <sighs> there, well, there wasn't any friction over it, but. My wife wasn't overly excited that I was going to strap myself in this steel tube flying 
fan and and launch myself with a parachute. But uh, she was still supportive, and uh, <laughs> honestly, it was it was my desire to to get in the air in a more cost effective uh, manner because everybody knows that you know the the cost of renting an aircraft these days is is sizable. So I just want an excuse to fly, and and I thought that it would be a way for me to launch from my farm here and tool around for as few a dollars as possible and uh, f- come back in here and land. And I started to realize after uh, buying one of these powered parachutes that uh, there is no directional control. You have to weather vane, or it weather vanes you, I suppose, and with no rudder, you're either crabbing at best once you're airborne, but when you take off or land, you have to do it straight into the wind. So it, it really only works well if you have a, a wide open space. Aha. Uh-huh. That's unfortunate because we have a freshly paved 880-foot concrete driveway out front. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't know if the wind favors that direction or not. But uh, It's actually funny because I had um, we had a gentleman in our jump seat. Light, it was late last year who uh, a major airline captain who was talking about his powered parachute flying. And I had sort of heard about it, but once he told us about it, I got all excited and, and got looking into it. Cause the idea of uh, the idea of being out in the elements, uh, AKA the wind in your face when you're flying, that's not something I get at the day job. So the idea, you know, the, the appeal was there for a time frame, And then I remember talking to you and another person about just, not the difficulties, but some of the smaller nuances of powered parachuting, and I was like, "Ah, eh, it's probably not going to work for work for me." Plus, I don't have a pickup truck, so you can't. I can't put this thing in the back of my four door sedan to uh, to go out to a field. But um, they, they still sound like a pretty cool way to fly. Yeah, I They're, see them at the beach every so often. You know, the powered parachutes, and that's kind of cool. And uh, I guess they, like you were saying, they weather vane into the wind. So I guess if you have a, a strong sea breeze, you're you're definitely going to be landing. Into the water, I would assume. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, think about it. you exactly. got to have a pretty wide beach there. But they, the price on those has to be pretty darn low because everybody says that. I, I've never really looked into it. Like, how much do they cost about? Do you have any idea? So, if you're talking, I want to make the small distinction that uh, between powered parachutes and powered paragliders, for those who aren't familiar, a powered parachute mm. is a machine, a typically three wheeled machine, uh, with Typically, a Rotax 582 two-stroke or similar uh, engine, uh, tubular frame structure around and some slight protection uh, between you and the and the engine, and a pusher uh, pusher prop. A powered paraglider is the smaller chute that's strapped over your sh- shoulders, and your legs are your landing gear with a p- uh, powered small two-stroke engine on your back. Um, Powered parachutes, uh, the wheeled variety, they're in the four to fifteen thousand dollar range, depending on equipment, uh, age, and whether or not it's a two-stroke or a four-stroke uh, Rotax sitting behind you. But they can typically carry two passengers. And the you know back to the difficulties with powered parachute. I think for me, since I was a fixed-wing private pilot first i kind of knew the flexibility of flight where you could get in and if it's if it's raining now nah, you can still fly if it's uh 
cr- full-blown crosswind, you can still fly. These uh, powered parachutes, I found myself getting up at 6 a.m., and I'm not the best morning person anyway, lugging this thing on a trailer to the field, setting out my chute, and inspecting all the lines. So the setup and the pre-flight process is, is 5, 10 minutes if you do it you know, uh, systematically uh, and cautiously. And by about that time, you find out this crosswind is set up, and now you've either got to move your chute or and change the direction of takeoff. And maybe you can't take off into that direction because there's hangers there. So <laughs> I ended up I ended up just driving myself nuts and said, ah, oh, there, there's gotta be there's gotta be something else that's affordable. And that's when I got into a two-seater tail dragger. Okay. So going yeah, so going back to that, because I had forgotten about the power of parachutes, but so that was the Kid Fox 3, which is like I mentioned, the high wing tailwheel airplane with a uh, a Rotax engine. Tell us a little bit about the Kit Fox uh, 3 that you owned. So the uh, the 3, we bought that with 40 hours on it. So it was, it was almost new. It had just finished its 40-hour uh, fly-off that the FAA requires. And I was able to find an instructor who had time in Kit Fox. That was actually required by the insurance company to get uh, a CFI with time in in. Uh, that specific type of aircraft. And uh, he did my tailwheel endorsement right in my own plane, so that was that was pretty slick. And actually, he's a good friend of mine now, so um, we get two bonuses out of that deal. Uh, the awesome thing about the Kit Fox and a lot of the decision to buy into that was the folding wing. So a lot of the attraction initially with the powered parachute was something I could keep at home and not have to pay hangar fees constantly draining my pocketbook. So the idea of folding this thing up, putting it on a trailer was the the major selling point. And it, it truly is that, that simple. You know, you pull a pin out of the leading edge, uh, near the, uh, the wing root, and then it pivots backwards on the, uh, on the bolts at the bottom of the strut and the aft section of the, uh, of the wing. So you can fold it up and then uh, hook a winch to it and winch it up onto a trailer and drive home and keep it in my barn. So I had more invested now, but I could still do the same thing. It was a two-stroke engine. It was a Rotex 582, and I could take it to and from the airport and learn to fly tailwheel and then just you know bring it home, tuck it away, and I'm not paying anybody if it sat there for a month or a week. didn't matter. Mm-hmm. This poses an interesting mid-question that I hadn't even thought about, but I've never flown an aircraft that had foldable wings for storage or transport purposes. Did that ever bother you as an aviator that this airplane, by design, its wings fold? I mean, you know, it did initially, and and I do replace those uh, bolts every year just as part of my annual. But I'll tell you, if you go and look at some of the AN hardware that's holding together citations and things. There, there's, there's less hanging on, uh, less strength concerns with this Kit Fox than than some of those. If if you stand there and stare at it long enough, you go, well, I guess if they chose to do it that way structurally, I'll be just fine. Okay. So I kind of got over it. Yeah, I never, I never thought about that till you mentioned it. That's interesting. Heather, because some of the uh, some of the new light sports, uh, you know, have folding wings and other variations of, uh, of of aircraft out there. So that's that's neat. So you started in the Kit Fox three, and you um, 
Now, it's interesting because I did mention that you have your own backyard runway, but this portion of what you're telling us is you you would hang it at the house in the barn but go out to the airport. Had you not uh, improved the backyard for the runway yet, or you weren't to the, to um, ready to start flying in and out of the backyard yet? Oh, it was definitely me not being ready. <laughs> you know, you, you. I think everybody pretty much respects the difficulty in learning tailwheel and having to be hot on the feet and ready for that uh, always uh, imminent uh, ground loop. But it was a matter of of perfecting skills because it is it it's no simple task bringing it in here. So I, I probably put on forty. 50 hours of tailwheel time at least and got to really know that aircraft. The other really the other really impressive thing about owning your own plane that I never respected was how much better you get when you always fly the same plane and when you fly frequently. When you that frequency makes so much difference to you as a pilot. You you become four or five times better when you can consistently fly regularly once a week or something. It, it makes all the difference. But anyway, back to your Back to your initial question, the uh, the field is it's just my unimproved farm field. I, there's I haven't gone to any lengths to dress the ground more than for a uh, hay crop and wheat crop that's going in this year, and uh, so there's nothing there's nothing special about it. I I used to mow it, but I don't even mow it now that I've got uh, big tundras. Uh, but the trick there is that it's very very steep. It's a uh, it's about sixteen percent grade so the angle is like nothing that you normally ever want to see in fact coming into it if you're flying level at it it still looks steeper than when you're looking down at an airport normal approach if that makes sense that the angle that you're coming in at it is is very steep and when you uh when you come over the fence, there's a five foot fence I got to clear. And when you clear that fence, you've got to go to almost full throttle to mat to go back into a climb to match that the angle of approach on that ground. And then uh, usable distance on it is probably 500 feet, 400 feet maybe. Yeah, closer to 500 feet. There's a there's a fair amount of rollout, but it looks really short when you're looking at this almost cliff face that you've got to set this thing on. But I'll tell you, I don't advise doing it when it's uh, when it's approaching dark. It makes it very hard to judge. <laughs> very hard to judge your flare. But there is no runway lights, to say the least. Oh, uh, so you always have to take off downhill and land uphill. Yeah, and I don't. I don't come in and out of here all the time. I do have another place I keep it some, because in the summertime when the winds pick up, the that puts me into a configuration with a tailwind. So. I'm now I'm coming in here at 55 instead of 45 and that can be problematic. So huh. yeah, you, you take off into the wind and, and it's, it's a, it's a great time taking off because as you, as you, ta as you're, uh, go to take off power and you lift the tail and you're rolling, uh, down the runway, the ground just drops away from you. So I don't actually climb when I take off, it's full throttle forward stick a little bit just to lift the tail and then just wait, and the ground goes away. <laughs> well, that's cool. Hey, Brendan, I got I got a question about the Kit Fox and and, and the design. Um, you know, every time I see it, it looks like a a one ninety five. I don't know if you ever heard that before, like a Cessna one ninety five because of the cowling with the bumps in it. 
I mean, why did they put those little bumps in the Cali on the on the on the three? You know, I'm not sure. I'm sure that they were trying to go for some some styling because there's absolutely no reason for it inside. And they actually went away with that in about the Model Four, the Model Five transition. None of the I shouldn't say none of that. Someone would hang me out to dry on that. Very few people now choose to use that bump cowling. I think right. they, they felt it, it was less efficient. And so most uh, builders now go for the smooth cowl design, which um, it's a good time, I guess, to transition and talk about the, the Model 5. There's a, a huge, actually a very significant change between the Model 3 and the Model 5, and, and now they're up to the Model 7s. I think a lot of people remember the Model one, two, and three in the old days because they've had such a long uh, history. I think they started in 83 or 84. They've been around a long, long time. And so I think a lot of, of those mental pictures of the round cowl and um, that whole styling cue and the kind of narrow, no baggage uh, compartment look is still in everybody's mind when they hear the name Kit Fox, but they've really transitioned into an awesome um, backcountry uh, plane, you know, I can carry 120 pounds of baggage in the back alone. I, it's a 1550 max gross plane, so I can pack around, you know, 800 pounds of gear and fuel. It's uh, interior now with the bubble doors on the model five, six, and seven. They're somewhere around the the uh, width of a Cessna 172, so it's perfectly comfortable for two uh, larger adults to sit in there and have elbow room. It's just it's a great little cruiser. I can get 120, 125 mile an hour out of it and cruise, uh, as long as I don't have these big Tundra tires on. They're, they're a big drag. Wow. How big are your Tundra tires? They're 26-inch Alaskan bush wheels. Now, uh, did you have the... So, let me see. You had bush wheels on the Kid Fox 3. Were they the same sized ones or different ones? No, on the 3, that'd be kind of large. I had some... Uh, 800 by sixes, I think, on the uh, okay. on the Model Three, which proportionally speaking, because that plane was was a much lighter plane, um, they were effectively bush tires. Right, right. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. I was gonna say I knew 800 sound familiar to me, but I think I know what you mean now. Yeah. Um, Is that more difficult? I guess to land. I have never done the Tundra tire thing or take off. I mean, so is it that much different. The biggest difference is that your nose attitude is is greatly increased when you go from a standard tire to that you, you can you can see a significant uh loss in your visibility towards the front so it's all peripheral takeoff and landing you're going to rely heavily on your peripheral vision uh, as far as the the tires themselves um they always seem to perform better in grass they're a lot more forgiving in grass and i avoid pavement like the plague um, if I have to land on a paved strip, I'll, I'll inspect the grass to the side and see if I can land in the grass and then taxi out onto the ramp. There's no turning around. You don't, you never lock a brake. You always keep them rolling. Yeah, I mean, they're soft enough that if you take your thumb on a hot day and rub it on the tire, you can see black tread come off and, and they're a lot of money. So you don't, you don't want to risk tearing off more tread than you have to. Wow. I, re- I remember that. I remember not going. Well, not going, but I do remember the the, the difference, the characteristics, uh, ground handling difference on pavement. Um, I don't want to call it squirrely, but you could you could. It's not the same as a tread tire, plain and simple. 
Yeah, it's different. And the uh, the other thing too is the the takeoff. Well, the the landing speed, the touchdown speed is 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 different because you can you can keep that angle of attack higher without you know busting off your tail wheel before the mains touchdown. So. I definitely was able to come in and land at a slower airspeed thanks to those tundras. And then you can get a slowed down. What I tend to do with that is once I know I'm I'm just above the ground with my tailwheel, I'll just drop the stick forward and dump off that lift and kind of drop it on the on those uh, on those tundras because I keep about five psi in those. You know those those don't have a stem in them. There is no tube inside those. Those are a sidewall air filled tire. So. They've they've actually built those in with uh, I believe it's all Kevlar reinforced uh, tire, and then the the fill tube, the Schrader valve, is actually on the sidewall. So you fill them up like that, and then there's no if you if you leave them super low, and if they were to spin on the rim, you're not gonna tear up your tube and then you know have a flat right there while you're trying to land. Huh. Who now who helped you with learn how to fly that thing? I mean, did you get a an instructor that had specific, you know, large two tire experience, and did you watch videos? Oh, I've watched a thousand videos on off airport and tundra tire stuff, but there really isn't enough difference. I mean, I, I strapped. This is the beauty of experimental aircraft. I strapped them on and took off. It wasn't any. I mean, I knew I knew on the first time out that I better be on grass because grass is so much more forgiving. So we, I did a bunch of takeoff and landings on on grass but uh other than that it, it just feels weird i wouldn't say that it's problematic or you need any special instructions for the tires themselves you know i think that i think there's a lot of safety implications for um off airport so i think you've got to really be a diligent and safe pilot if you're going to play in that arena but i i haven't received any special training for that i, I do believe there is some available though yeah i know damien uh, and i think he has a bunch of videos on your website at crazepilot.com. They have uh, uh, quite a few videos there on how to land with tundra tires and skis and stuff like that. I forget how to say his last name, but he's he's in New Jersey. I believe it's Del Gazo. He he's Delgazo. an excellent pilot. Those videos are excellent. Uh, they're all in high def too, so you can see his his approach and he he really talks you through some stuff. And and actually, that is one of the things he mentions in the videos is to uh, is, is to not lock a brake on. On uh, on those tires, right, right, and that's uh, so. You obviously bought those videos and watched some of those videos about landing a, a tailwheel. But the uh, I, I tell you that that is so cool that that you were able to go out there and just kind of do it yourself and, and get a feel for it. That, that's pretty gutsy. That's it, pretty gutsy. Well, I got to be honest too. The the resources out in this uh, neck of the woods in Oregon is not uh, there's there's not a lot of flight schools that have tailwheels online. So if you don't just kind of jump in with both feet and hunt down, you know, other people like yourself to ask questions, especially, you know, even questions online, try to sort out questions or problems or concerns you have, you know, you'd be stuck. I don't know what, I don't know how else you do it without just jumping in with both feet and making it happen for yourself. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, well, guys, uh, before we do continue uh, with the questions for Brendan, we're going to just take a uh, quick, quick break to hear uh, from our sponsor. When iPad pilots think of efficient cockpit management, there's only one name to know, forpilotsonly.com. Whether you fly with an iPad or iPad mini, 
we have a full line of kneeboard and yoke mount options that will help you optimize your time in the air. At 4pilotsonly.com, every product is engineered and manufactured in the USA, and our forever guarantee against damage is the strongest you'll find anywhere. If your iPro Aviator or iPro Navigator is damaged, even if it's your fault, we'll repair or replace it for free. Forever. If you're an iPad pilot, remember our name, 4pilotsonly.com. Okay, and we're back now. I know Victoria, you um, you said you, you were you had a question about the Kit Fox uh, for Brendan. So, uh, what what do you got for him? Yeah, um, I know there's a lot you can do with Kit Foxes. Um, was curious if you've ever flown one on floats. No, I've not been on one with floats. I know it's pretty commonly done. Um, the Kit Fox has good handling characters. This really sounds like a Kit Fox ad. <laughs> <laughs> The only, I think the only reason we're going into it in, in such depth is there is some oddities about it, and I can appreciate your concern, Len, about the uh, folding wing. You know, and the uh, really for me, it it was about having something I could come and go from from here with, and and I didn't really think that uh, I didn't think it was even possible to have a plane that I could land in here. I certainly, didn't, never realized that uh, folding wing was an option, but I think it took getting comfortable with the idea of experimental aircraft in general and being, um, it was what I learned from the powered parachutes. Really. That's my biggest takeaway from my time with powered parachutes was I met an excellent, uh, certified Rotax mechanic who would, uh, I could consult with from time to time if I had any questions about maintaining the Rotax. And that's when I realized that experimental fixed wing with those same engines that I had learned, uh, uh, to operate with powered parachutes were out there on the market in a used, uh, you know, on a, on a used market, uh, that totally opened the door. You know, you don't have to build an aircraft from scratch. And I think some people get the notion that, well, if I'm going to go experimental, then I need to go and buy a kit. I'm going to go and go and buy an uh, aircraft engine and I'm going to bolt it all together. And, and, uh, maybe they're too nervous about that. So, I suppose I was probably in the same line. To me, it's a matter of time and money. I, you can actually, it's kind of like buying a, an almost new car that's depreciated and somebody else took the depreciation. It's kind of like that. You know, if you can find a good used aircraft with low hours, it's home built and it's proven itself by maybe 50 or 100 hours of flight, you're no longer a test, uh, a test pilot at that point. So you've got a proven aircraft as long as you're willing to do some wrenching on it to maintain it and and I enjoy that work so that uh, became the most cost effective solution for me was to find an airplane that was 5-10 years old and did you, just maintain uh, it did you have any concern over the person that built it I mean did you did you look into their background also I guess that, that, that's one of the concerns I hear is like gosh I want to know that the person that built it was you know had some integrity because you're not sure if they did everything properly is that a concern that went through your head? Uh, not for me. And the main reason is the Kit Fox specifically is quite easy to open up and inspect really well. And you could opt to do a, a good pre-buy inspection with an A&P. I, I didn't, um, only because of, I suppose, my confidence in working with machinery for most of my life, just being around equipment and farming equipment and car maintenance I've done that I figured most obvious blatant stuff that wasn't easily repaired I would spot but then here's the other trick there with a folding wing I didn't fly at home 
I trailered at home. And uh-huh. we then did further inspection. And then I roped in my uh, A&P and my Rotax mechanic and said, let's go over this extremely thoroughly before I take it up for my first flight. That's how I bridged that gap of concern and uh, um, was able to make sure that, that the first flight was going to be a safe flight. And you know that – Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say one more thing on that is that I'm sure so many people are, are thinking, instructors like myself, who I, I teach in some experimental aircraft, and, and I, I've really enjoyed it, but I, I think the same thing goes through the mind of the person that's getting in the airplane with you. It's like, gosh, did you know, do I trust this person to have done everything properly during the, during the actually build phase and also during the maintenance phase? And that's, that's something that, that I found. I kind of ask a lot of questions when, I, when I'm with somebody who has an experimental aircraft and, and you know, what, what have they done to it and, uh, you know, what, what type of integrity does a person themselves have? So that, that's I, – I, I know some guys out there in, that, are, that are listening now that have said, you know, I, I don't think I'd ever get into an experimental aircraft that someone else has built – but I, I don't agree with that. I think there are some people that do a wonderful job building, and uh, you're kind of a testament to that. You're, you're somebody that actually, I think, has that integrity and has done a lot of work and, and hasn't just said, okay, I'm going to go out and do the minimum required, but I'm, I'm, you know, my butt's going to be in this airplane, and, and I want to make sure it's the best out there. Well, that's how – Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, Victoria. Yeah, that's, that is – I completely agree with that, and I think that your due diligence is – is also very important. So I'm, I have kind of my, my heart is in, in both places there because I honestly, I don't fly with a lot of other people and that's actually, that's exactly why I don't trust their maintenance. And you know, you could say the same thing about an A&P there, you know, one A&P is different from the next A&P, the quality of their work and their, um, and their experience is based on time and their own personality. So to me, I want to see inside and out pretty well an aircraft that I'm going to fly in before I just jump in that. And I, and I think that's smart. I, I will say kit-built planes like the Kit Fox, like the Rands, like um, a bunch of the Vans, RVs, and so forth, a lot of them is, is – uh, a lot of that work is completed at the factory for you. So f- like all the Kit Fox uh, welds, they're all done under the inspection of a, um experienced set of welders. Uh, some of these quick build kits where the wings are already fabricated for you on your behalf and then shipped uh, to you, and then all you're doing is skinning it and doing the electronics, well, the risks are are much, much lower as far as safety and what did the other guy do, quote-unquote, um, that things are a lot better off, you know, in those kind of, of uh, kit-built plane scenario. But some of these true experimental, you know, fab from plans, that, that I started getting pretty nervous myself. So I, I agree with you there. Right, right. I know Victoria was uh, knows a few things about experimental aircraft and flying them, right, Vic? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, a lot of people are scared at the word experimental. But, you know, as Brendan can tell us that, your aircraft still has to go through an annual inspection. When your aircraft is first done being built, it has to be inspected and get an airworthiness certificate. And then um, it's got to go through 40 flight hours to prove, you know, its worth. So when we say experimental or um, amateur built, it doesn't mean that the FAA is thrown out the door. Um, You know, what's great about experimental is you get a very versatile um, fun aircraft like the Kit Fox for a much um, more affordable price 
because it's amateur built. I wonder how affordable the insurance is on one of those. It's very affordable. We insure a lot of kit foxes. So as long as you got some, you know, you can do it with zero tail wheel time and zero kit fox time, we can get you insured. But if you come in with a bit of tail wheel experience, it certainly does help. But I found them to be um, pretty affordable, especially when you have the experience. Interesting. Interesting. Oh, yeah. I'd say I've got, I've got full coverage hull, uh, you know, included. And I don't think it's much more than standard passenger vehicle for me. Wow. Interesting stuff. We should do that on a whole nother podcast. Just talk about insuring these these type of aircraft. That's that's pretty neat stuff. But uh I I had no idea until I met Victoria that um these were going to be affordable to actually insure. I always thought they would be much more expensive. because uh, I was thinking like certain racing cars, et cetera, but it's it's not as high as I I, I imagined. And uh that's that's why I kind of brought that up. So people, I think I was under that misperception. I didn't want other people to, to continue on and think that way. Also, well, uh, insurance is, is always dependent on several things: your your value of the aircraft, and your experience, and then how difficult the aircraft is to fly. So there's three things that you know come into play there, that um, and that's what brings about your price. Interesting. Cool. Can I can I jump in and ask a quick question about? Because uh, I don't know much about experimental at all, and you've talked uh, a couple times. Used the, um, you know, talked about wrenching, and uh, you know, working on it yourself. And I wondered if you could explain, if there's a way, easy way to explain what you can and can't do uh, when you are working on, you know, an experimental. Uh, are those rules different than other planes? Well, yeah, they absolutely are. With uh, mine's actually licensed experimental amateur built, and so mm. since I didn't. Uh, assemble the aircraft myself, and it's not. There's getting some tricky stuff here. Uh -huh. If it's there's certain types of experimental lice, uh, um, airworthiness certificates that if you were the original builder, then you can continue to uh, sign off the annuals yourself. Now I didn't build it, so that's not an option for me. So mm -hmm. I have to have an A and P inspect my work, and that can be any work uh, on an annual uh, basis. I see. I don't have to have an IA. I just have to have an A&P review whatever I have done, review its airworthiness, and then sign it off. Uh-huh. Cool. So which is, that, which is for in my smart. purposes, yeah. yeah, exactly. But it's, it, regardless, it, it should be done anyway. But yeah. for me, I can tear the engine completely in half, rebuild it. It's my experiment, and I don't have to. I don't have to um, get an A&P to sign off any of those mods. I, I didn't have to get a. Um, any sign off for the tires? I didn't have to get any sign off for the um, engine monitor and um, uh, you know the anti-collision stuff. No, I didn't mm -hmm. have to do any of that. Interesting, Brendan. Being a guy who who does so much, you know, under the hood on your airplane, um, I know you've got the uh, the Rotax on that airplane. That's an engine. You know, a lot of us are familiar with Lycoming and Continental and that kind of thing, but. I've never flown anything with a Rotax. Could you talk a little bit about wh what that's like and how that's different? Oh, sure. Yeah, no problem. The uh, the Rotax is different because it's a uh, it's a geared engine, so the reduction it's a it's a it's got an engine on it that's turning around. Well, it turns max RPM fifty five hundred um, continuous, uh, fifty eight hundred RPM for a five minute stretch during climb out. And then they gear that down to a standard prop speed of, you know, 20, 
600 or 2700 RPM. So that is very hard for uh, traditional Lycoming Continental pilots to get used to because that you're looking at that tack and you can hear that engine whining and it's a little bit more like a motorcycle type sound from that consideration because you're turning such such fast RPMs. But outside of that, it's very um, responsive on the throttle. And the other thing that gets you is when you shut that engine down because of that uh, gearbox, that gearing down that uh, prop, when you shut that engine off, it lurches to a stop and it startles a lot of people because they're used to that blade coming through three, four, five times and then finally swinging you know, to a stop. There, um, what's what's the typical fuel efficiency on, I guess the one that's operating in your Kit Fox Five? I mean, how what's your what's your fuel burn? So that is so directly uh, proportionate to how how you're uh, pushing it or not. But if I want to just linger at, let's say, eighty miles an hour and just looking over uh, farm fields or something, I can get about three and a half gallons an hour out of it. If I want to get up into the 100 plus mile an hour cruise, you're going to be up in around five gallons an hour, five and a half the most. That's really breaking the bank, Brendan. Five five gallons an hour. That's <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. You know, I, it really hurts at the pumps. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and better yet, guys, it, the uh, 912 ULS, which is the 100 horsepower model, it can run on Avgas or it can run on um, 92 octane automotive gas. So I r- avoid going to the 100 low lead pumps. I carry my fuel in jugs. Actually, I have a farm tank that I I have full of 92 octane. So that's how I cheat the cheat the system too. Now, is that mm-hmm. a, like once you've picked your fuel, you have to stay running it, or you can run no. a tank of Av gas, and once that's empty, then you run the 92. You can mix them. The, the, you the can biggest, actually mix them in the same tank, too? You can literally mix them, yeah. yeah. And the only concern there that some of these people are having difficulties running hundred or um, some of these ethanol fuels because if, you, if you've gotten yourself 92 octane uh, with ethanol, the engine will run it, but some people are having difficulty on their older aircraft that had the tanks sloshed with a sealant compound, and that sealant is susceptible to from the uh, ethanol. The ethanol breaks that sealant down. Now it's traveling through your fuel lines, into your filters, into your carburetor. So that's really the only precaution is have the tanks been sloshed or are any other fuel lines susceptible to ethanol. You know, Brendan, go, going back to actually operating that engine, I I've only flown a Rotax a couple times, and I noticed you don't you don't do the the I guess the mag checks or or all the different run up things that you do in a normal aircraft, or, or I should say a, a regular aspirated engine like a Continental, but uh, and also I noticed on shutdown that uh, when you said that it actually came to a stop, you know the the propeller comes to a stop, that kind of jolted me. But I I noticed a couple of people talking about possibly turning one mag off then the other in slow succession like that. Uh, can, you, can you talk about that a little bit and, and make us understand like just a little bit about what's, what's the big differences about going out to the runway and taking off with a, a Rotax? All right, so I'll walk you through the typical um, pre-flight process for, for my plane. So there is no carb heat. It is um, the design of the Venturi is different. So as compared to Lycoming, 
the tendency for icing is greatly reduced. It, some people want to claim that it's you know uh, impossible to ice up a Rotax carb, but uh, it's a it's a Bing model sixty four, if I recall correctly. If, if someone wanted to look it up, or is it a Bing fifty? No, it's a Bing sixty four, I believe. Anyhow, it's the design of the shape of the air intake into the uh, Venturi, and um. So therefore, there's no carb heat to process through when you got the engine running. So you fire up the engine, and you got to let it warm up significantly. That's the that's the biggest delay is getting the oil temp up to 120. And then we do a mag check because there is uh, redundant uh, CDI uh, magnetos on it, and there's redundant spark plugs. And uh, at that point, you're pretty much ready to go. There is no other steps. You're right. It's it's greatly simplified. Um, there's no mixture control. It has an altitude adjusting carburetor on it, and two of them. Um, the one carburetor runs two cylinders, and the other carburetor runs the other two cylinders. So they have to be in sync. So again, it's kind of like the motorcycle scenario. You've got to have those carbs in sync, or you're, or you can uh, feel the engine kind of lumber. So uh, I, I, I hope I answered your question there. Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes sense. How about shutting it down? That that was the other question I had. Is uh, you know, I, I I've heard that with a Rotax, from some people, you shouldn't just click turn it off. Maybe you know, let that it decelerate slightly as you turn one mag off, then the other. Is that something that you feel you need to do to increase the lifespan of your engine? I do actually use that same technique. I'll I'll pull the idle back as far as I can get it and then drop to one mag. Then you get a, about a hundred RPM drop there, you know, pretty typical. And then uh, I'll go to the off position. And that does seem to diminish it a bit. However, there is a clutch uh, mechanism inside that gearbox which helps to uh, dissipate that uh, rotational force. When it stops suddenly it's supposed to uh it's supposed to break that clutch just a little bit to uh prevent gear lash going back up into your engine so it's not really a, a big problem uh it's been integral in their design for years uh that engine's been around actually a really long time now and very very reliable uh, very few incidents of icing have occurred and it makes her a very simple reliable engine for lightweight aircraft like this it's it's got a great uh power output for the weight and i can lift that kit fox off if i drop now, it's funny, that kit box actually has flapperons, and we didn't discuss that, but it's got full-length flapperons. There's not a separate uh, f- flap inboard. So when you, when you do pull on full flaps, you don't get this big, huge, draggy flap sticking out there. You've got this whole lifting surface that's just been tilted down a little bit. And I can pull on full flaps, and with just me and minimal fuel, I can be off the ground in about 50, 60 feet. A lot of it has to do with that high angle of attack from those tires too, but uh, it's quite a performer. A lot of a lot of power out of that engine for for a simple small you know engine like that. It's just great. We're a big fan of the Rotex engine, that's for sure. Yeah, I never forget the first time I shut one off. I was with an instructor, and and uh, she shows me. She turns off the engine, and and then I look at her, and I said, "Now what do we do?" And she says. Uh, get out of the airplane. <laughs> I was like, it's oh, really, that's it? <laughs> it's really simple. I just, I get it, I get in, start it, let it warm up, do my mag check, taxi out, do my cigars, and uh, I'm happy. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, great engine. Awesome engine. Uh, that's for sure, from what everybody tells me. 
and uh, it's it is terrific. But but yeah, that that was a cool discussion. Thank thanks for sharing all that about the Rotex. That, that was that was really wonderful. Oh yeah, but, my pleasure. Uh, Brent, with those big tundra tires, I imagine you get to get out and see lots of the backcountry sort of things. Do you have like a you know a favorite place you've flown into or out of? Uh, you know that that a lot of people wouldn't be able to get to. Well, you know what I like to do is go find somewhere new every time I I go out. So I'm looking for private grass strips that aren't flown very often. Uh, I'm looking for farm fields. Uh, there is a there's a few strips back up in uh, up in the mountain range uh, in Oregon here that I can get into and uh, I do a, I do a little bit of of gravel bar landings not a lot I, there, it's a fairly dangerous environment once you drop down below the the tree line down in a river it, it's a lot of fun it, it's a big rush but. Uh, you can certainly bend up an airplane if you're if you're not careful around the gravel bars. But I do really enjoy gravel bar stuff because not that many people can get down in there and do that. Is, is uh, Brendan, is that because of the wisely. is that because of the terrain? You mean, or what do you what do you what's your? Oh, across the board. I mean, you've got you're in the power line environment down there with stuff crossing the rivers. Uh, the waterfowl is a huge concern. Oh, I never even thought about that. There the the amount of of birds down in that vicinity i mean almost every time you drop down there you're, you're seeing birds somewhere and they're they can be up in the tree and and a lot of times if they're predatory and they're sitting up on a high perch looking down they're right where you're coming into that environment too so when they come off the tree up high they're right there by your wingtips so then you've got just the whole judgment factor of how big is that rock really or is there uh, driftwood that's sticking up out of the ground that's being shadowed in a way that I can't see it. Um, it's it's got a lot of of tricks to it, but that is at the same time what makes it, you know, enthralling and and uh, it's a challenge. So these are more like narrow river, narrower rivers, if you will. Then, uh, yeah, you know, a lot like the the Willamette River here that uh, c- cuts through the Willamette Valley um, near Salem, Oregon, is. Uh, that's a couple hundred feet wide. I mean, you know, maybe two or three, two or three airplane wide could get in there. But the tree, the the height of the trees is is significant enough that you drop down in there. That, you know, the old rule that I was that I was uh, told is once you get down in the water, stay on the water. And when you're going to come back out, get back up out of the power line environment. Of course, this this should not be taken as instruction. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly not. Clearly not. No. Uh, no the reason I asked is because we did, um, when I had those uh, couple of opportunities to fly the Super Cub up in Alaska, and we did some gravel bar flying and whatnot, but these are, I mean, these are really huge rivers, and these are the kinds of rivers where there's not, you know, you're not necessarily in a a tree valley, if you will, when you duck down. I mean, it's just so wide. There's really not any obstacles. So um, it wasn't it wasn't as uh, I guess as challenging because that was my first um, time landing on a gravel bar. Uh, my friend took me out to uh, the Kinnick River up in Alaska, just outside of Anchorage, and um, it was nice. It was about I think. Six seven hundred feet long, uh, so it was, it was good. It was good for a for a first timer uh, landing out there. But yeah, it was by no means narrow or anything like that. There was uh, plenty of outs, that's for sure. Well, it's you know, 
I think that around here, there's a little extra awareness you got to have because farmers will run down uh, irrigation pumps into the edge of the river there, and you got to watch for those lines. And sometimes if they own a remote, or not a remote, a, uh, a parcel of land across the river, they'll, they'll have strung power lines over to that. So you'll get these unmarked uh, lines across uh-huh. rivers that are... Yeah, that are a concern, and and it's it's all for ag purposes. But you got to watch for them if you're gonna if you're gonna play in that vicinity. But you know that's that's not required. You know, just landing in open farm fields. You know, I got some farmer friends that sometimes we'll land in there and visit with them, or or uh, you know, just kind of going up into the mountains and some of the some of the um, uh, forest service strips are are neat places to go, and generally. I think that to rental aircraft, they don't want you taken up into those kind of environments. So when you own your own plane, especially with Tundras on, you can drop into those kind of remote places and set up a camp. And sometimes we'll just go up there for breakfast, and just take a camp stove, and before we get started at work in the in the morning, we'll we'll jam out of here at five thirty and go have breakfast somewhere in the middle of nowhere by ourselves, and then come back to the office and get to work. Now you talked about. I remember. You made a comment about your one of your favorite breakfast spots. What was uh, tell us quickly about that and why it was one of your favorites to fly into? Oh yeah, I, I had commented on that on Twitter, didn't I? Yeah, there's a there's a, a, a private strip northwest of of here called Flying M. If anybody's around these parts and listening, they'll, they're I'm sure familiar with it. it it's been a uh, a fly-in lodge, for, I think for. A long, long time. I remember uh, my grandparents had, had mentioned it even. So uh, the strip used to be, I think, 1,500 feet long, and it's part of the uh, land was sold off, so it got split. And they decided in some sort of infinite wisdom moment that they'd put a semi-trailer across the middle of the runway because, boy, they owned half and somebody else owned half. So it led to some risky landings because the word that had been around for so many years was that it was a perfectly safe strip to land in. So you have people going in there for the first time in a year and finding a semi across the, uh, the runway. So they shortened it down to about, I don't know what it is now, probably 800 feet, a thousand feet. And, uh, it's just a great traditional, uh, backcountry Idaho type fly in destination where, uh, you fly in in the morning and, 7 a.m. This uh, lovely lady's, uh, she's she's kind of opened her little house there to all the pilots that want to fly in in, in uh, Northwest Oregon, and so she makes this big spread, and we all sit down, talk aviation, and she's got nine or ten different f- things to choose from in this big feast, and then we all launch back out of there and and head on our merry way. But it's just a great place to connect with other pilots and have a really great breakfast at the same time and it's it's right in the foothills of the coast range and you got to you got to kind of know what you're doing going in there because the it's a dog leg and you've got to miss the gate when the gate's open and then don't don't drop a don't drop a main off of the ditch that's on the left side as you're landing and get stopped before the crossing driveway so it's just it's great fun it's a, it's a challenge and it's very it's doable from anyone that's maybe gone in there once with someone else, but yeah, you you probably really want to have either skills or the right aircraft or both. That sounds pretty awesome, uh, and that that might be the answer to the question I was going to ask next. I, I was going to say, you know, 
with all your experience, is there one that really sticks out as your favorite experience that you've uh, been able to have with through airplanes? I really like I really like going into places where no one else has landed or doesn't land often, one or the other. You know, just uh, I've heard it called pioneering. Just pioneering a a field, a farm field. Uh, you know, going and doing something that just just the idea of taking a bush plane into places that most other people can't go is very rewarding because you're 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 one of few. As if aviation doesn't give you that right already. You're really one of few enjoying this from above and and uh, I I love the low and slow uh, scenario, 500 feet where you get to see the world from that vantage point. I'm not a, I'm not a 2000 foot, you know, cruise kind of altitude person. I, I like to get down and really look in, uh, look in that farmer's barn. What's he got in there for machinery? You know what, what, Oh, look at that collector car. What's, what's that guy got? I mean, the, the value of being able to get down low and look at stuff. I just really, really like that. And the, this, this kit Fox back to the kit Fox, of course, as I'm droning on about it, uh, we've got big clear bubble doors on it, so the visibility out of out of that uh, design is is fantastic. It's almost like a helicopter. You really have a ton of visibility, and that's probably my favorite thing. It's just getting up there and getting a good look at the at the world below. What well, What would you say is the shortest landing roll you think you've ever made in there? Oh, are we talking with wind or dead wind? <laughs> Let's say with wind. Let's say the most extreme. Uh, with with some wind coming at you, you can definitely get stopped in under 100 feet. Nice. But I think the average ground roll, probably 180, 200 feet. Sometimes a little better now. Very cool. Yeah, it's it's good fun. We enjoy it. Uh, Brendan, you've had, um, you've had these kit foxes, and from what I understand, you've actually used uh, both of the aircraft as a test bed for aviation products, something that we hadn't really talked about yet on the show, but you are the proprietor of crazedpilot.com, which, as you mentioned to me before, um, is not a quote-unquote pilot shop, but the online supplier of aircraft parts uh, and accessories. Tell us a little bit about what you do uh, at crazedpilot.com. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Um, Crace Pilot has been online since 2008. We're exclusively an online uh, parts and accessories uh, company. Uh, our goal is to uh, get and avail um, these accessories to pilots for whatever they need at, at an affordable price because I think we're all aware that a lot of the accessories and things surrounding aviation are just flat expensive I mean, from avgas to everything else. So we really wanted to try to bridge that gap to get equipment into the hands of pilots or, or experimental aircraft builders uh, in a much more cost-effective manner. And uh, we started out actually repairing headsets back around 08, and uh, we were rest uh, restoring and refurbishing mostly David Clark's at the time, and we knew that we needed uh, parts ourselves to meet those needs and then we realized well hey other people need these same parts too and and then we branched out into uh training dvds like you mentioned the uh tailwheel 101 and 201 dvds earlier uh we started marketing those and other entertainment dvds the off airport stuff things like that big rocks long props you know, those kinds of dvds and uh in the last couple years we've begun developing our own products in-house uh, a lot of cockpit LED lighting systems for uh, you know affordable lighting solutions on the interior. We've also got 
uh, exterior uh, LED strobe and uh, lighting systems that we developed. And most recently, uh, we've got uh, COM, uh, COM audio interface cables for the Hero 3 and the uh, Contour HD cameras. And that's, uh, I think, Lens, you've mentioned some of those things in the past too, I think, on your blog. Yeah. But uh, we've, got, we've got those. We've, a lot of the products that we develop in-house uh, solely for the purpose of having it remain affordable for customers. So exciting things. We're, we're really enjoying being involved like that in the aviation community. And it's a great place to, it's a great place to, to find yourself for, for work. We're really happy <laughs> to be involved. So you come up with this idea, you guys engineer a part in house, and then you go and you use your personal aircraft out of your backyard airport as the flying test bed. I mean, that, is this guy right, lucky right. or what? A lot I don't of, know if it a, can a get lot better. of the, <laughs> that's right. A lot of the gear has seen time in one or the other the aircraft. In fact, some of the marketing materials on the website you see some of the some of the photos there and the videos shot there are are on that one or the other plane. So it, it yeah. Well, you certainly can't come up with a solution and then uh, recommend it if it hasn't been tested thoroughly. So absolutely. Uh, and speaking of which, you know, for the interest of full disclosure here. I did want to make note that we um, here at Stuck Mike Avcast are an affiliate of CrazedPilot.com. Uh, so what that means is when you purchase items uh, through one of our links, there's no extra cost to you, but we will receive a very small percentage, which uh, goes to maintaining the website and the podcast on top of earning yourself extra karma points in our logbook. Um, before we do wrap up, though, we need to get the contact information from you, Brendan. How could, uh, um, how can we find you online? Whether it's Twitter, Facebook, uh, website, and all that good stuff. Sure, we're uh, we're definitely on Twitter. We're on Facebook. You can find us on both at Crazed Pilot. Uh, if you want to come visit our website, because of what Len was saying, we would love for you to share some of that love back to Stuck Mike. So go to crazedpilot.com forward slash S-M-A-C. That would be the best place to visit. You can uh, use our Contact Us button there too if you've got any questions that you'd like to have answered. Very cool. And over there on the website, uh, like you said, there is some some neat flying videos, some of uh, some of which we were talking about a little bit of the off-airport stuff. You do have those uh, there and on your YouTube page. Do you promote your YouTube page or just uh, put the Not videos separately. on the website? You, okay. Yeah, you can find them on the website. Okay. But there is, if you dig around for a video link, I believe it's at the bottom, there is some of uh, my personal YouTube videos of coming and going in the Kit Fox and and uh, there's other videos there showing some of the products too inside the plane. So, And there's also even a review. If somebody wanted to learn more about those Alaskan bush wheels, you can go into YouTube and type Alaskan bush wheels and you'll find our product review there of, of those tires if you're interested. Very cool. Very cool. Well, uh, Brendan, seriously, it's been, uh, it's been cool getting to hear uh, the, you know, the background, how you got started in aviation, the aircraft ownership. Like I said, what uh, primarily got me interested is... Uh, it's just you as the aviator flying out of your backyard and the experiences that you've shared with me off the air and, and previous to sharing them on the show today. And we, we really do appreciate having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. The After Landing Checklist. Um, if anyone is interested, our contact information for the co-host, you can reach us at stuckmygavcast.com 
forward slash contact, all of the information there to get a hold of the podcast as a whole. Questions, comments, shows, ideas, you can submit them through there. Also on that uh, on that link is all of the individual co-host contact information if you're looking to get in touch with the, each one of us individually. Uh, from myself, Len Costa, Carl Valeri, Rick Felty, Sean Moody, uh, Victoria Zyko and our guest uh, Brendan O'Mara. Thank you all for listening to episode number 54 of the Stuck Mike Avcast, sponsored by ForPilotsOnly.com. We wish you clear skies and calm winds. Take care. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Avcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Avcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast brought to you by thepilotreport.com, a Len Costa Production.